First John chapters 4 and 5 are just packed full of all kinds of stuff. It's great. And let's see, where we start? In, in verse 3, uh, But every spirit who does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. You have heard that he is coming, and he is already in the world now. Um, whenever I have heard about the Antichrist, it's always in the book of Revelation, talking about in, in the future, uh, far distant from the first century, uh, there's going to be this, this anti-Jesus coming who will, who will turn people away from God, who will corrupt the world, and all kinds of bad stuff happens. But it's off in the distant future. John is saying that the Antichrist is already in the world now. And so, uh, just with some quick brainstorming, that means that either every generation has one, or he's still around after 2,000 years yet to fulfill those prophecies, or that those prophecies were fulfilled in the first century or somewhere thereabouts. And we are living post that. So keep that in mind when you're, when you're researching uh, and looking into the revelation and the fulfillment of those kinds of prophecies. That this, is, this is in First John, and that, uh, that's confusing. So I don't have an answer. I don't know which of those three or if there's another option out there. But um, prophecy fulfillment is never straightforward before it happens. Uh, which is why so many people were confused when Jesus arrived on the scene. And he started fulfilling prophecies because he was fulfilling them. And some people were looking at it and going, oh, he's fulfilled it. And other people were looking at it going like, no, this doesn't fit with what we are reading and studying. And man, they read and they studied uh, far more than we in today's modern culture do. And they were confused. I suspect that these fulfilled prophecies, when it's all said and done, is going to be marvelous and amazing to, to see how God orchestrated all of these things. But I highly, highly doubt we're going to know what it looks like beforehand. Uh, let's see. And then down in uh, chapter, uh, verse 7 starts talking about uh, loving one another and, and God's love for us. Chapter 9, uh, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. And so that's in this next section, he's just answering a lot of these questions of like, how do I know that God loves me? Um, and, and that's how we know. We know because he sent Jesus. Therefore, love one another. Um, so we, we can't, we can't look at our life circumstances of right now and say, God does, God must not love me because I'm sick or someone I love is hurting or somebody died, uh, or the world's on fire or all of these different external things, because the way that we know for certain that God loves us is that he revealed his love to us by sending Jesus into the world to die for us. That is 
that that is his love for us. Um, and how do we love God? It's in uh, chapter 5, verse 3. For this is what love for God is. Like this is a like definitive, this is what it is to keep his commands. And, you know, the first time I read that, I, you know, I jerk back a little bit inside and I'm like, ah, tell me what to do. But, but the, the very next, I mean, not even the next verse, right there in the same verse, now his commands are not a burden. Because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. So the commands that God has for us are for our good. They're not they're not burdensome. They're not they're not frustrating to do. They're good things that are for our benefit. We should love his commands because they should give us more life and more strength, more joy in doing them. Because they're not a burden. They are they are our healing, and they're, they're putting us into the way of operating that we were meant to be in. And that's how we show our love for God, is by operating in the way that he built us, and living in that love and that self-giving uh, state that he, that he was in for us. He wants us to be more like him, in that we are loving and giving and selfless, which is what God is, because he gave his son, Jesus, which is how he showed his love for us. He talks a little bit about, earlier he was talking about being in God and God in us, and, and we might have questions about what that looks like. And so in uh, back in chapter 4, verse 13, how do we know that we remain in him and he in us? Um, so right there he says, this is how we know that we remain in him and he remains in us. He has given us his spirit, or given to us from his spirit. Uh, we have seen and we testify that God has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. So that whole paragraph is talking just so densely about what that love looks like. He's saying, um, how do we know that we are in him and he is in us? And he gives a handful of things. He says, he's given us his spirit or of his spirit. So we have um, a part of the spirit of God living in us. Uh, we also confess and testify that Jesus is the son of God. And we come to know his love for us by remaining in his love. And by remaining in his love, by confessing that Jesus is Lord and is God. And by the, the down payment of his spirit living in us and how that changes us. Those things together give us assurance that, that we are in God and God is in us as we submit to him and as we as we pour out love to the people around us. There's a lot of discussion about love here, and love is a word that we've really messed up 
in in the English language. I really wish we had more words for love because if I were to walk up to, you know, some coworkers of mine and say, I love you with genuineness, they would look at me really confused because the word for love is almost synonymous with the word for lust. It's like the socially appropriate word for lust. Um, you know, if you're watching, you know, television shows or reading books, they're almost the same thing. It's this, I have this burning desire for you, but it's for me. It's a selfish um, yearning for somebody else, for yourself. And that's not what love is. At least that's not the love I see in scripture. Love is patient and kind and self-giving. It's a dedication and it's hard work and it's actions that are serving and caring for somebody outside of yourself. Not based off of a feeling or a, a bunch of you know, emotions and endorphins. It might have some of those. But love is giving intentionally, especially when it is difficult. It is, it is not easy. It is a constant, consistent choice to choose somebody else's good over your own. And I just wish we had a better word for that in English. This one's already going long, though. So <clears throat> I'm going to wrap it up here in uh, chapter 5, verse 18. Th this echoes back several times throughout First uh, John and also uh, back into, into Peter and, and back into James. Some of these really bold statements that, I don't know, they kind of scare me because that's not how I see my life. <laughs> uh, chapter 5, verse 18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. But the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. And that scares me because I still sin. And so I look at that and I go, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. So that goes, Well, I do sin, therefore I must not be born of God. And so I looked up a bunch of commentaries on this and tried to understand what, you know, like, what, is it, what does it mean? Did it mean something different to them? Is he talking about a different context? And all the commentaries pointed to that when we are in God, sin can't be there. Not intentional sin, not, not choosing to go astray and choosing to contradict God. Because if we are in Christ and we are one with Christ, then... The choices we make will be for love and for self-giving and for all the things that Jesus stands for. But when we are not in him, when we are doing our own thing, when we're relying on our own strength, when we're relying on our own, our own power and we are, are tempted and give in, then we sin. The hard part for me, though, is that this... This doesn't say if you are in God, which is what it says in, in some of the earlier passages. This says if you have been born, like this is a past tense, like this happened to you already. And I think I'm just going to, I I think I'm going to 
chalk this up to a this is a an ideal state like this is what we're shooting for we're shooting for never sinning intentionally because we are in God so much and if we are just soaking our minds and our hearts in in God's word and we are actually taking action and changing our lives uh, to focus on other people and to love other people and to care for them that this is where we'll get to that we will not sin and the evil one will not touch us because we are in Christ constantly so that there is no room for sin and there is no room for uh, for hate and doubt and bitterness and greed and self-focus and I would love to get to that point and reading more and more of scripture and and praying more and more um, and and just spending more and more time in God's word has brought me incrementally closer to uh, having more compassion loving people more uh, I am I still I'm not I'm definitely not there. I am not in Christ all the time, but I just so desperately want to be. And I hope you do too. I'm going to go pray.